Welcome to the White Coat Life Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Certified Coach Paula White, MD. If you're a physician in academic medicine looking for skills to understand and take control of your experiences, both in work and out, this is a great place to start. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me today. We are going to dive right in with a challenging topic today, what it feels like when you're being sued. And because it's a bigger topic, we're going to break it up and cover it in more than one episode. I wanted to have at least a little bit of framework for this discussion, so I did a quick search to see if what I thought were the basic facts held up. And it turns out that most of what I was thinking is pretty darn close. And of course, when you type something like, how often do doctors get sued into Google, you get a ton of hits from legal firms offering their services before you can find even one relatively recent publication on the topic. One thing I found was a commentary in JAMA in 2018, and the author was Kevin O'Reilly. The title was, quote, one in three physicians has been sued by age 55, one in two hit with suit, unquote. So, yeah, pretty darn close to what I was thinking. He also wrote that women physicians are less likely to be sued than men, but that might have been attributable to age and specialties. And they noted that most plaintiffs are not successful. About 68% of lawsuits in 2015 were dropped, dismissed, or withdrawn, but that still incurred an average of $30,000 in defense costs. They noted that general surgeons and OBGYNs, hello, are the most likely to be sued and quoted a 63% rate of having ever been sued for OBGYNs and general surgeons. That's a painful number and not at all surprising. And while some specialties are less likely to be sued, if you just take this at face value, looking at medicine as a whole, about half of us are going to experience this one or more times in our career. So it's probably a good idea to figure out what we can do about it. Now, obviously, the most important things when you're thinking, what can we do about this, are not at all what we're going to be talking about today. This is not going to be about using our voices to push for reform in the medical legal system or for more protections from hospitals or better training in the things that are proven to make you less likely to be sued. All of those are super important. They're just out of scope for this conversation. What we are going to talk about is how you can take control of your own experience if it ever happens to you or someone close to you. I sincerely hope it never does. I hope that you are the other one in two. I hope this podcast is gathering dust and you never have to brush it off and listen. We're going to start by talking about a case I saw in a journal many years ago. We have a couple of these journals in OBGYN that don't publish any original research. They're more like cliff notes and summaries. I don't seem to receive them anymore, but for years they just kind of showed up in my mailbox on campus every month. Now, I know it might be really tempting for all of us in the ivory tower to turn up our noses at publications like this, but they really do serve a useful purpose. There are a lot of docs out there who feel like they're way too busy to sit down and read a high-impact journal. Plenty of docs never got any formal training in research design, methodology, and interpretation, much less any teaching about biostats. So there are probably a lot of people out there who feel really intimidated by the big journals and might never read them. And with publications like this, they can at least see the highlights of what's new and important. 
yes, it means the interpretation might be a bit influenced by opinion or writing style, but it's far better than nothing at all. Anyway, one of them has a section in the back where they give you the facts of a lawsuit, a decent amount of backstory, and then tell you what happened. They tell you which state it was and what year, whether it was settled or dismissed, or if there was a decision and how much the award was, if there was one. Okay, so there was a case in one of these several years ago that stuck with me. The details might be a little bit off, but I think you'll get the general gist of it. There was a patient who had some sort of breast issue that needed follow-up. My memory is that it was a palpable lump on exam and the doc ordered diagnostic imaging and the patient didn't go. It's possible that it could have been like a BIRAD zero screening mammogram and follow-up imaging was ordered and the patient didn't go. Anyway, the important part is the patient didn't go. The doctor's office staff clearly documented at least one attempt to contact the patient and remind them of the importance of scheduling. I'm sure you can guess where this is headed. The patient eventually went for the imaging after a very long delay, was found to have cancer, and sued for a delay in diagnosis. Here's the kicker and why this case, just a couple of paragraphs on paper about a patient and doctor I've never met, sticks in my head after all these years. It went to trial and the doctor lost. A jury found the doctor liable despite what most people would consider to be a reasonable effort to get the patient to schedule. I myself am a bit extra about things like this and I thought it was a reasonable effort, probably not as aggressive as I usually am, but completely on par with what most reasonable doctors would do. So this is all awful, right? You do your job and then some, and the patient doesn't follow through, and you're somehow found to be liable for the patient's inaction, which you can't control? My initial thoughts on this were, that's ridiculous, that's outrageous, that's completely unfair. Lots of thoughts like those. And to be clear, I still think all of those things. I'm choosing to think all of those things. Those thoughts resonate with me, with my sense of right and wrong. So here's the interesting part. My brain did not focus on thoughts like, well, if that's the system, then we're all doomed. What's the point of trying if you're just going to be held responsible for things you can't control? This is hopeless. Instead, the direction my brain went with this was to essentially dismiss it. I didn't forget about it, obviously, since it's stuck in my brain enough to be talking about it now. But I dismissed the idea that this is something for me to worry about. When I think about this case, in addition to all of the it's outrageous, it's ridiculous type thoughts, I also think things like, this is so ridiculous that it's extremely unlikely that it could become the norm. This is not going to happen to me because this jury's decision was a fluke. It's unlikely to happen again. Or, there must be some key details about this case that I'm missing. Or, my reminder system is probably better than that doctor's system, so my documentation will protect me. So why am I able to be so dismissive? Well, obviously, the biggest thing is that it wasn't happening to me, or anyone I know, or in the state in which I work, things like that. So that makes it easier to have some distance and decide, okay, this just doesn't apply to me. And it's also partly self-preservation, an unconscious acknowledgement that if I start believing something like this will happen to me, it will be paralyzing. But let's take a moment to focus on the fact that there are obviously many, many different ways of deciding to think about something like this, and the outcomes for us individually can be vastly different based on what thoughts are dominant for each of us. 
With my current thought, I have a very good system for following up on abnormals and this is unlikely to happen to me. The emotion it gives me is something like confident, which leads me to actions like keeping up with my current system and revising it if I have an idea for an improvement and continuing my current level of vigilance. And the result is that I maintain and curate a very good system for follow-up on abnormals. If I was stuck in the paralyzing thought, there's no point if we're just going to be found liable for things we can't control. The feeling obviously is paralyzed and the actions are a lot of ruminating about how unfair and outrageous this is, probably a lot of complaining about it to colleagues, constant worry about being sued for something I feel is outside my control, and feeling paralyzed does not drive me to improve or even maintain whatever system I currently have or do anything that will increase the odds of follow-up being completed. So the result is I'm relinquishing any control that I do have and making myself helpless. There's no judgment here. I'm not saying, hey, what's the matter with you if you're choosing to think such a disempowering thought? Of course someone might think that. I think things like that all the time, just not in this particular situation. It's completely logical. It's good to notice, though, that there are other options, which means that thinking something like this is, by definition, optional. Sometimes it might feel like that's the only possible way to think and feel about a situation like this, but we just had a great illustration that that's just not true. One thing that can keep us from letting go of a thought like this, even when we know it's optional, is the anger and indignation of what we feel as an unjust situation. It can feel like, well, if I'm not angry about this, how is anything ever going to change? We're just going to sit back and let these terrible things happen and do nothing? No, not at all. Let's look at that idea a little more closely. In scenario A, where I dismissed this as unlikely to happen to me and felt confident, the doctor in the lawsuit did X, Y, and Z, the patient in the lawsuit did A, B, and C, or failed to do A, B, and C, the jury found the doctor liable, I felt confident it won't happen to me, and I maintain a solid follow-up system. My thoughts and actions did not impact anything for the patient and doctor in that lawsuit, the medical profession, or the legal system. So let's look at scenario B, where I was paralyzed. The doctor in the lawsuit did X, Y, and Z. The patient in the lawsuit failed to do A, B, and C. The jury found the doctor liable. I felt paralyzed and made myself helpless. My thoughts and actions did not impact anything for the patient or doctor in that lawsuit, the medical profession, or the legal system. So the only things that were different in these two scenarios was my experience of it. And once again, I am not saying this as a judgment. It's completely logical, and of course it happens. I'm bringing up the comparison to give you permission to drop the painful one if you're so inclined, because it's not creating what you think it is or what you want it to. If we come back to that last question, we're just supposed to sit here and let these terrible things happen because however we choose to think about this unjust situation apparently has no impact. Again, definitely not. Think about all the ways that people who are out there fighting for change do so. They do it by meeting with their legislators, by doing expert witness work and verifying when care was appropriate 
by contributing to their medical society's political action fund so lobbyists can be sponsored. I'm sure there are plenty of other actions that people are doing to help bring about change, but none of those come from being paralyzed. They come from feelings like being determined, tenacious, persistent, prepared, powerful. Those are the types of feelings that drive us toward these sorts of actions. And the really great news is that we are complex and ever-changing beings, and we have room in our brains for lots of different ways of thinking and feeling about a situation. So if we're feeling powerless and paralyzed at the moment, it doesn't mean that all is lost. Things could change. We can change them. And that's almost a wrap on part one. I intentionally picked what I think is a very straightforward case where just about everyone who hears the details will agree it was unfair so I could demonstrate some general principles. Next week, we're going to get into some murkier territory when things aren't as cut and dried as they were in this example. Before we finish, I know that there are some of you out there who want to know what my reminder system is, since I feel so confident in it. The details may vary a little bit depending on what the specific situation is and how worried I am, but it usually goes something like this. An abnormal result that requires follow-up testing comes to my inbox. The patient then gets a MyChart communication from me outlining the next steps. These days, results are all released automatically, so the patient has already seen it anyway. If it's something particularly sensitive or unexpected, it might be a phone call instead of MyChart, but usually it's a MyChart message. I set the unread message notification for about a week from now, so if the patient hasn't read that message within a week, I'll get a notification. I also postpone the abnormal result to my inbox for the same day as that unread message notification, because even if the patient has read the message, I'm not done yet. But all of that is cleared out of my inbox for the moment, because I don't need it cluttering up my inbox until it's time for the next step. When the result pops up a week later, I check to see whether the patient has read the message and scheduled the follow-up. If they haven't done both of those things, they get a phone call. And by a phone call, I mean a closed loop. Leaving a message on voicemail doesn't count. We need a person-to-person -person conversation. If we make three phone call attempts and the patient doesn't call us back, then they get a letter. If they do return the call and the person-to-person -person conversation happens, the result now gets postponed another week. When the result pops up again in a week, I check to see if they've scheduled the follow-up. If they have, the result gets postponed to the day after the scheduled appointment or test. So when it comes to my inbox this next time, either I just got the new results yesterday, so I know this old one is okay to delete, or I'll look and see the appointment was a no-show or canceled or hopefully rescheduled. If it was a no-show or canceled without rescheduling, they get another letter, possibly a certified one at this point, depending on how serious the issue is. Now, if it's something where everything's fine now, but they're going to need some follow-up in 6 or 12 months, the patient goes on a reminder list. If you have Epic and you're not using reminder lists, I highly encourage you to learn about them. You type out the message to yourself that you want to receive and what date you want it to show up in your inbox. Nothing's in your face until it's time to deal with it, but all the patients are on a list and you can go look at your list anytime you want. It's really handy for things like when follow-up after treatment for cervical dysplasia changed and the first HPV-based post-treatment testing is now needed in six months after the leap instead of 12. 
you can find all those patients at once because you have them on a list. So anyway, I have the reminder come to me for whatever time frame is a reasonable buffer for that type of appointment. If it's something like follow-up breast imaging or a pelvic ultrasound, I would usually send that message to myself about four to six weeks in advance of when the test is due. If it's for an appointment with me, it would be about three to four months in advance. And then the whole my chart message, letter, et cetera, process is applied. If this sounds like a lot to you, it doesn't sound like a lot to me at all. It feels like the exact right amount of work to me. It feels easy. Some days I don't have any of these follow-ups in my inbox. Some days there are a good handful. But it's all so streamlined now that it never takes me more than 10 minutes to dispo all of them. I'm the type of person who usually gets to work 20 to 30 minutes before my shift starts or clinic starts. So usually all of this is done and out of the way before my real day begins. Now, I'm not telling you all of this to try and convince you that you should do the same thing. I'm just sharing what works for me and why I can feel so confident about it. Okay, and now that really is enough for today. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks for joining me today, and I will see you back next week for part two. Opinions or views on this podcast or on my website are my own and should not be attributed to my employer.